This Moment Outdoors is brought to you by L.L. Bean, official partner of the National Park Foundation for the Find Your Park movement. Welcome to episode 108 of the RV Miles podcast, your home for RV and camping news, reviews, travel guides, and more. I'm Abby, and along with my partner, Jason, we are two full-time travelers who are out there with our boys, Jack, Ethan, and Henry, crisscrossing North America on one epic road trip. And boy, has it been pretty epic lately. Each week, we talk all things RV and outdoors from travel destinations to gear, industry news, our national parks, and a whole lot more. So welcome. As you may notice, Jason is not back this week, and he probably will not be back for a couple of more weeks. We are still in the Minot, North Dakota area as he is recovering from emergency brain surgery, but... This week, it's not all brain surgery. It's not all no cardia. It's not all me. We have David Solberg on the show this week. David is from the RV Repair Club, and we have an interview that Jason did with David about three to four weeks ago before his brain almost exploded. So... I'm very happy to have this interview in my back pocket to be able to share this with you, not only because it's fantastic content. Jason and David talked for quite a long time about RV maintenance and tips, and this is going to pertain to any type of RVer. So we're not going to just talk about a particular class of RV. We have enough content with this too, because they were just chatting so much that this will be two segments of the show today. So you're going to get me for a little bit, but then you're going to get pre brain surgery, Jason, for a while, as well as he chats with David. That's going to come up a little bit later in the show. As a reminder, because Jason is still missing, we're not going to have a brain teaser this week and we're not going to do fresh tank, black tank. I feel like those are just things I would like to do when he returns. And also, as mentioned, my black tank is going to get probably really boring really fast because it's just going to be about no cardia, which is the bacteria that is currently tearing through Jason's brain and that we are working to treat and help him fight. So let's chat because I know so many of you have been asking and I fully admit it is very hard to keep up kind of with the updates. I wish I had more time to share across all of our platforms because we have been and continue to be so thankful and so overwhelmed and so blessed by all of you who are sending us light and love and well wishes and checking in on us and offering advice and support. It's really just been amazing. 
So I just want to use this platform to share with you what is going on here with our family before we jump into our more traditional format and get to our interview with David Solberg of RV Repair Club. Before we do all that, it's official. Summer is over. Fall is on its way in. And that means it is time for some fall camping. I have always loved fall camping for tent camping. It's some of my favorite time of year to do a little tent camping. And you know what goes really great with a tent camping experience is a Pelican cooler, especially if you pick up the 70 quart, because that is going to keep all of your food for an entire weekend nice and cold. If you haven't had a chance to check out a Pelican cooler after the weeks and weeks we have been talking about these guys, what are you waiting for? They are fantastic. Head over to pelicancoolers.com slash RV miles to see their entire collection of hard sided coolers. Plus you're also going to receive a free tumbler with any hard-sided cooler purchase. Fall camping is here and you deserve a new cooler for a cooler weather. Head over to pelicancoolers.com slash RV miles to get your free tumbler with any hard-sided cooler purchase. If you haven't listened to episode 107, you might want to jump back and check that out as it's going to give kind of what's led up to where we are today. And today we are in Minot, North Dakota. We have been in Minot for about three weeks, four weeks almost. Jason is almost three weeks post-op from emergency brain surgery for a bacteria that had infected his brain called nocardia. Nocardia is commonly found in soil. However, for most people, if they do contract it, it presents itself as pneumonia. For a select few who like to go big or go home, it can travel to different organs, including the brain. Jason went big instead of going home. And this bacteria traveled up to his brain and he developed a very serious and life-threatening infection. He has had the surgery. He came home from the hospital about 12 days ago and we have been doing an at-home, very aggressive at-home treatment for the last 12 days and for the next 30 days, so 42 days total. I drive to the hospital three times a week, 7 a.m., 3 p.m., and 11 p.m., and I pick up a very time-sensitive IV antibiotic called Bactrim. I bring that home to him, and then I proceed to administer it to him with a portable IV. He has a pick line that is right in his elbow, and then it goes up into his heart, right? So I hook him up to the machine and then for the next 90 minutes, this IV antibiotic is administered into his system. On top of that, he's also taking two oral antibiotics and then a bunch of other things to counterbalance a lot of the side effects, nausea. He's had a little bit of a, we think maybe an allergic reaction or just a sensitivity to some of these antibiotics, headaches because his eyesight is still very compromised. The bacteria has fried some nerves up in his brain that are connected to his eyes. And so his interior left, I believe there's a lot of terms that float around to me and I don't have my notes in front of me, but he has some eye issues that are affecting his left peripheral. 
this should not keep Jason from having a normal life, going back to the things he loves to do, creating, writing, podcasting, and traveling. If the nerves in his brain connected to his eye do not repair themselves, his eyes will learn to compensate. We will not know whether or not his eyes are going to need to compensate or if they're going to get 10%, 50%, or 70%, or 100% better. We really won't know that for several more months. This isn't something that just you take a few pills for and then you go away. The ophthalmologist said to us at the appointment, which I found really amazing, that this is something they are told no cardia is something that they are told or they learn about, but are really never expecting to see in their chair. They don't ever expect a patient to come to them with this bacteria. That's how rare, that's how deadly it is. And we're going to sing this from the rooftops forever. The treatment and the care he has received from Trinity Hospital here in Minot, North Dakota has been exceptional. They were on this from day one and they continue to monitor it and do the very best for him. I see the pharmacists at the hospital three times a day. I will see them three times a day for 42 days. They are some of the nicest people and they are always problem solving with me. If I have questions about potential side effects, our home health nurse that calls me once a week, she's so nice. She's so helpful. This has been a really difficult and really, really challenging experience, but it has been made manageable by the care we have received at the hospital and by the people in our lives near and far that maybe we've never even met in real life who believe in us and believe that I can do this, believe that Jason can fight this. And it's that kind of rallying support around us that I think keeps us from falling a little bit into despair. It's really easy to ask, why me? Why did this happen to me? Those questions that come late at night, you know, when you're trying to sleep and you can't because you have so much medication pumping through you that your body is just wired. Thankfully, we have been able to sort of stem that tide a little bit by the people around us by the fact that even though this is a hardship right now, the alternative was to have no hardship because there would have been no Jason. So I would go to the hospital every hour on the hour if I had to, because that's just a small blip of time in my life. That's just 42 days. I want 42 years with Jason. So if I have to you know, do this for 42 days, if he has to lay in bed for 42 days, if, you know, we have to make provisions to sustain ourselves here in Minot for 42 days, then, you know, that's what we do. So it's probably going to be end of October before we're finally heading out of here. You know, I really would like to get out of here before winter really sets in because we want to drive the truck and trailer back to family. And then Jason is going to continue to recover back in the Quad Cities. We're going to take him home for the rest of the year. I don't think that we will even begin discussing travel and being back on the road until the first of the year because this has kicked his butt. 
and it has kicked my butt, but not in the way it has kicked his because I didn't have brain surgery. He did. And so we need to get him well and he needs to be with his family, extended family, extended friends. So the holidays are coming and that's usually when we slow down our travels anyway. But it'll probably be the first of the year before the Uppersons get back out on the road. But we will be back out on the road. Trust me. And I'll probably be behind that truck and trailer. I'm going to be driving it. And I'm good with that. I've been driving this truck all around Minot. I'm getting the feel for it. You know, it's not as scary as it felt in the beginning. And now I'm ready to hitch that trailer up, get this family back on the road and start to heal us. Because you know what heals us? Travel. Traveling and living in our RV and seeing this amazing country that we call home and being in our national parks. I want to get Jason to a national park because it heals you. It will heal him. And so I look forward to us being back out on the road and for our family to start healing. That's where we are. Let's take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we are going home to the RV Miles podcast that we all know and love. And David Solberg from RV Repair Club is going to join Jason on the show. And they are going to chat about RVs and the RV lifestyle and all the things that we love. So stay tuned. We're going to be right back. This portion of the podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Road Trippers. Road Trippers lets you plan your perfect road trip and fill in your summer route with personalized stops along the way. Road Trippers Plus lets you add up to 150 waypoints on your journey. And it's only $6.99 a month or $29.99 a year. Plus, podcast listeners can get 20% off an annual subscription using code RVMILESPROMO. That's all one word, RVMILESPROMO for 20% off Road Trippers Plus. Just visit roadtrippers.com slash plus offer, code word RVMILESPROMO. And we are also brought to you by Whole Cell Warranties. RVs break down, trust us on this one, and with repair costs averaging $300 per hour between parts and labor, there's no time like the present to protect your life on the road with Whole Cell Warranties. Wholesale Warranties is the leading provider of warranty protection in the RV community. With a focus on reliable coverage and customer service, Wholesale Warranties keeps you on the road where you belong. Don't let repair bills sideline your RV trip. Your RV will break, but with Wholesale Warranties, your budget doesn't have to. Get a free quote today so you can travel with peace of mind tomorrow. Visit WholesaleWarranties.com or call 800 800- 939-2806 for your free quote. All right, friends, we are back and so pleased to welcome David Solberg from RV Repair Club to the show. As mentioned, Jason and David chatted a few weeks ago about maintenance tips perfect for any type of RV. So here we go. David Solberg from RV Repair Club. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. 
let's start by getting a little background on you. What what brought you into RVing and uh, and what led you into RV Repair Club? I grew up in the Midwest and my folks, we had four boys. I was the oldest and every year we would go camping three or four times a year and do one great big trip. We went to Colorado, we went to Montana, we went to New York City um, in an RV and stayed in the New York New Yorker City RV uh, pad, which was all cement, which I thought was kind of odd at the time. And uh, after college, um, I was uh, kind of floating around a little bit, and I got uh, started working at Winnebago. And I was in the marketing department, uh, owner relations. I spent 15 years at Winnebago, and uh, I left to do my own video production company. We had two satellite uplink trucks and bought video equipment, so. I did videos for the RV industry, and it was a good opportunity to, as we call it, take the Winnebago blinders off. And we did a, a lot of videos for other companies, uh, you know, most of them across the RV industry. And I had a, um, one of the dealers call me up after I left and said, can you do the seminar for us at our shows? We used to do what was called the Motorhome School. And it was a seminar at Winnebago about the different classifications and, you know, kind of choosing the right RV and floor plan. And so I started getting into seminars. And with that, I started doing more shows, uh, did a lot of good Sam uh, shows around the country. Uh, now I do the RBIA show in California, and I've got 15 different seminars, just kind of kept growing on things that people wanted to find out about how to uh, make the refrigerator run more efficient, all this stuff. And in doing that and getting a lot of stuff on YouTube, a company called TN Marketing approached me. And they had, uh, back uh, several years ago, had kind of done a little pilot series on VHS of what we called the uh, Good Sam Club and, and sent out a how-to video with some oh, traveling and different things like that. And uh, at the time, the industry was a little soft and it didn't test well, but then they called back and, and said, we want to start a new community. They have 15 different um, communities online, Fix My Hog and Woodworkers Guild. And the one common theme is a lot of people are buying an RV to help support their hobby so they don't have to do the security at the airports and pet-friendly hotels and all that stuff. And so they, uh, they contacted me and said, uh, we would like to do this. And we started off, uh, it's been almost five years now, and uh, we have over 200 videos. And um, one of the challenges in the RV industry is when you do a video on something, trying to make it generic enough because RV means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, it's not all trailers and motorized. And so, you know, we, we kind of concentrated that first year on stuff that would be fairly universal, refrigerator, troubleshooting, how they work. Um, you know, the nice thing about the, the site too is it's, it's called the RV Repair Club, but it's really not just about repairs. Um, in fact, we're helping, actually partnered with CoachNet, and uh, about 50% of the calls that they get are people not understanding how a system works. But to them, it's broken. It's not working. So they, they love the fact that we have videos online actually just showing how things work. You know, here's the refrigerator. Um, you know, you have to have a 12-volt battery source even when you're hooked into shoreline power because the eyebrow board works off the 12 volt battery. And, and, you know, uh, everybody's had battery issues, uh, air conditioning, uh, you know, not working efficiently. And, you know, so there's a lot of maintenance and 
upgrades and, you know, not just the repair, but, uh, you know, there, there is a lot to work on in RV, just like a home. You know, I, I tell people in my seminar, it's not uncommon to build a home and then have a punch list of 10 things for the plumber and the electrician and the drywall and the painter. And, you know, we've got an RV that's got the same components and yet we're letting it go 70 miles an hour down the road and we're letting it get to 120 degrees inside and minus 20 if you live in Iowa where I'm at. So, you know, there's always something to work on, it seems like. Have you found that is the technology changing fast enough that it's affecting uh, your videos? Do you have to replace them or is, is... is a lot of the stuff sort of remain the same over the years? Well, there's there's a lot that's uh, exactly the same. In fact, when we first started shooting five years ago, we used a 1992 Sun Cruiser on a lot of our videos uh, because I had access to a friend of mine had that one. It needed a lot of upgrades. It wasn't broken down at all. He kept it inside. It was actually immaculate. But we went in and put in new TVs, new antennas, um, upgraded it, but a lot of the stuff like the refrigerators, the furnaces, the air conditioning units, they still run the same today as they did 25, 30 years ago. Um, but there are certain technology issues. You know, there's new types of slide room mechanisms, there's the Wi Fi's. And so, you know, we kind of try to combine a little bit of both of, of that and, uh, and show, you know, how to be connected on the road uh, with some new antennas that are available. Um, you know, so a little mix of both, but you still go in. I've got a friend that just bought a million dollar uh, RV and he's got pretty much, um, you know, half the items in there are, are fairly generic and uh, operate the same. He does have a residential refrigerator, which I tried to talk him out of, but, you know, that's the way he is. He's, he always camps in luxury, he says. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I suppose if you have a million dollar RV, you're probably always plugged in somewhere. Well, it was kind of ironic. This is a funny story. He had a Prevost before that, and uh, he would go to air shows and places where he would camp out in an open field. And uh, he bought this new Renegade, it's called, an ICANN, and it's a kind of a semi-front, you know, big Super C, a semi-front end. And he said, I said, well, you know, why did you, why did you trade that way? And he said, well, they go to these air shows. And he said, do you have any idea how embarrassing it is to have a million-dollar RV? And when it sinks down in the soft dirt, there's only one drive axle in it. Well, how embarrassing it is to get pulled out with a million dollar RV. And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> you know, I, I do know how embarrassing it is to pop the clutch on a on a '72 Impala. But you know, no, I don't. There but aren't very I, many of us with that experience. No, no. but I guess this new R, this new RV has two drive axles that you can engage, and so. You know, everybody has uh, you know, something that their specific way of RVing is kind of neat. There you go. Well, Dave, we brought you on the show today to give us a little bit of advice. This is the, the busy season, of course. There are a lot of people out there in yep. their RVs right now. Uh, I imagine it's a busy season for you as well. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some, some basic tips uh, that everybody has to deal with. Let's start with the big one that that if you're uh, if you're in any Facebook forum, you're uh, you're always hearing about issues with RV tires. What is yep. what is the proper way to find the proper inflation 
for a trailer tire. Yeah, and that you know that's a very very big topic in my seminars and all over the country. And I've done a, a lot of research uh, working with the RV Safety and Education Foundation, their RVSafety.com, and it was started by a gentleman that bought a he retired from the Navy, bought a fifth wheel, and just kept blowing out tires after another one after another and another. And he finally, they brought him in and weighed the coach and found out he was grossly overweight of the GBWR and that his tires were underinflated. And he, nobody ever told him. There was no education. So there was a ton of tire problems out in the industry. The proper way, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's the number stamped on the side of the tire or it's the one on the sticker on the door. That, that on the tire is actually maximum pressure at maximum weight. That means you have to be loaded completely up to the gross vehicle weight rating. And you know, some of these units, you can put 3,000 pounds or even more in some of the diesel pushers. And so you're not always at maximum weight. So that pressure is not correct. That's going to give you overinflation and, and basically balloon your tire up and you'll have less tread on the ground. So braking and handling and, and tire wear is all affected. The only way you can do it is to weigh the coach. Um, the best way is individual wheel positions, which some dealers will do and the RV Safety uh, Education Foundation does because I, I see some units where they're a thousand pounds heavier on one side than they are on the other because they got the refrigerator and the slide room and the generator and they put all their stuff on that side and the light stuff on the other. But if you can go to a cat scale, flying J's, pilots, you'll get a good ballpark of that. Weigh the coach, they have individual scales. So you put the front wheels on the first one, the back wheels on the second. If you're motorized, truck, trailer, same thing. Front wheels on the first, back wheels of the truck, trailer on the third. Then find out what your weight is. Go to the tire manufacturer's uh, tire chart. And rvsafety.com has all the tire charts. You go to that website and you can just download whatever Bridgestone, Firestone, Michelin, whatever you've got. Find the tire size, dual or single application. And that is the, the pressure that you should put in that tire. So it, it's a little, you know, deceiving when that you know goes out the door and the sticker says you're supposed to put 95 PSI in it. Well, you know, they may have done the math for you, but you then are going to put in another 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 pounds. So weigh so, the coach. So the, it, the RV manufacturer has put that sticker in there. Uh, based on a, a calculation, a guesstimate of it's either the base weight or it's a guesstimate of how much weight you might be carrying, right? And it's not the maximum. Right. We are seeing, a, a, I think there's a real good movement by the RV manufacturers, you know, kind of spurred by John going out and weighing coaches. Uh, you know, 75% of all RVs when he first started were overloaded. And I think that's even a small percentage, you know, from what I've seen people do, but he's helped educate the industry. He's helped educate the RV manufacturers because, you know, you start blowing out these tires. And I remember my folks when the first trip they ever took, they went to a campground with the uh, Winnebago club and they came back and said, Oh, I got to get rid of those Michelins and put on Coopers. And I was like, no, Michelins are, are about 90% of new RVs have Michelins on them back then. And if they have blowouts, well, who gets the bad rap? It's, you know, it's the tire manufacturer and, oh, I got to put these heavier Coopers on. No, nope, you're masking the problem. So RV manufacturers are doing a much better job of 
trying to calculate that, but you're right. It's more of a an estimate of where it's at when it's unloaded. And and when you pull onto one of those cat scales, you're you're getting uh, the axle weight, the individual axle weight, or if you have a you have multiple axles on your trailer, you're getting that set of axles. And and you're saying Correct. it's it's best to ind- to weigh by individual wheel. Uh, which you can do from one of these specialty companies. Correct. Correct. In fact, their data shows that, that there's a, a large percentage of, of RVs that uh, you know are 500 to 1,000 pounds heavier on one side or the other just from what they're weighing. And, you know, I, I would guess that they're probably not weighing 30% of the RVs in the industry. They just, they've got three teams. They just can't get everywhere. But, you know, so it's not uncommon. Now, there are some of the cat scales that I've gone to that I can actually straddle. So I just put just the drive wheels um, on halfway and then, you know, back, pull out around and put the, or excuse me, the, the drive wheels, the driver's side wheels, and then the passenger side. So I, I get a little better idea. But um, one of the things that I tell people to do when they're traveling down the road is take one of those infrared temperature thermometers, the little guns, you know, you shoot mm-hmm. at something, you tell what the temperature is. And just once a day when you're out on the road driving, when you stop for fuel or, or food or whatever, take that temperature gauge out and just go out and check your hubs, check your brakes, brake drums, and check your tires. And if it's 70 degrees outside, it's not uncommon to be 85, 90 degrees you know, out on blacktop. But if you see one side of that tire spike up in you know, it's 10, 15 degrees higher, or you see that brake drum and stuff spikes up in the 120, 130. That's telling you that my bearings need to be looked at, that my brakes might be set up a little hot, my, my tires might be underinflated because they're all going to run hotter when that happens. And you'll see that spike, and that's a good warning. But also, if you see a difference between the driver's side and the passenger side in those tire temperatures, you know, you probably have more weight on that side that, that's running hotter. It's going to work harder. That's kind of a good telltale, too, that just says, hey, you know, I might have to do this. So speaking of heat, a lot of people are concerned about keeping their refrigerators cold, especially at the beginning of a trip, especially while traveling. Give us an idea of how, how these absorption refrigerators work and, and what we can do to sort of troubleshoot problems when they're not cooling properly. Well, the, the way a refrigerator works, and it has a boiler that's got, uh, uh, ammonium sulfate, it's got hydrogen, ammonia, and water. And you have a heat source that's going to boil that. And when you run on LP, it's going to be a flame. When you run on 120 volt, it's going to be a heat element. So it just gets really hot. It boils that stuff so it becomes a vapor, and then it goes up into the evaporator coil, which is in the, the freezer section. And as it goes through there in the fins, it, it will literally take and the chemical reaction will draw heat out. So it's not like we're pumping cold in. We're, we're pulling heat out, and then it makes its way back down, and it just keeps doing the cycle. It goes into the freezer, the refrigerator compartment, and then back down to the burner assembly, and it just keeps going in that cycle. So uh, it's pulling heat out of there. So the first thing that, that you need to do is, you know, to make sure that, that you always are level. Um, it's six degrees side to side, three degrees front to back, I believe it is, but there's a, there's a little bubble level 
that all the refrigerator manufacturers give you and just put that in the freezer section. Because if you run your refrigerator out of level, that liquid can't go back down. It, it turns back into a liquid after the evaporator coils and it makes its way down the zigzag. If you're out of level, it's going to sit and pool on one corner of that coil. And the hotter it gets, the more it's going to flake and it's going to block that cooling in. Big problem in the industry with those refrigerators because so many of us take our RVs and we get ready for our trip. We pull them into the driveway. We go hook them up and let them run for two days. Well, the driveway is going to be slanted to keep the water runoff. And since we're not sleeping in it, we don't even realize that, ooh, I, I'm starting to you know make my refrigerator get blocked up and it's not going to be running as efficient. So that's, that's the first thing. Let me just ask you quick. I think a lot of people think that the level doesn't matter if you're if you're plugged into electric but but you're saying nope, it works the same does. way whether you're on electric yep. or propane it doesn't make a difference you need to be level exactly both both uh, sources are just heating that solution up one's a heat element the other's a flame they yeah. do the exact same thing though gotcha so you know understanding how it works is, is one thing and the next thing is, is you know don't expect to fire your refrigerator up warm and put warm food in and have it cool down. It'll take you days pretty much to, to do that. If you can, you can cool the refrigerator down first. And, and one of the things that I always do is I put a five pound bag of ice in the freezer section. Cause that's my first freezing part of the whole thing. And that just kind of helps absorb and, and really makes it run a lot more efficient. Uh, the next thing is, is I, I want to make sure I clean the filter. A lot of people don't even know that there is on the top of your uh, roof, if it's not in the slide room, but if it's on the top, you have a roof vent that's up there and it's got a plastic shroud over the top of it so moisture can't get in. But that's where all that heat is supposed to come out and, and get out of your the back cavity uh, or flue of your, your refrigerator compartment. And it's got a screen over it. So if I get dust, I get those little cotton balls from the cotton trees, I get you know, leaves that will block that screen and it will block that hot air from getting out. And your refrigerator is going to have a really hot cavity and it's just going to be fighting itself. It, it won't run efficient uh, that way. The other thing you can do is uh, add fans to it and don't just put those little nine volt fans down on the bottom. That's just too much stuff in the way on, on your cooling coils and stuff. You really need to pull the refrigerator out and put the fans up on the evaporator coils. And they make these five-inch um, fans that you can put up there, and they're temperature sensitive. So it gets up to 90 degrees, and it helps blow that heat out of the back end of that. Um, then the other thing I tell everybody is just once a year, check the seals in your door. It's not uncommon for us to put our, our milk and our water and our heavy stuff in the door like we do at home. But... In your RV refrigerator, you do that and it bounces down the road. That that door has a tendency to sag and your seals aren't going to be completely sealing around it. And you don't want any of that warm, moist air from inside the rig coming into your refrigerator. So just take a dollar bill and shut the door on the dollar bill and a good little tug is all you need to make sure that, you know, if it slips out real easy, air is going to get in. So you're going to fight that. Now, if you've got one of the big diesel pushers like my friend, I told him he's going to have to use a hundred dollar bill because his maintenance is a lot higher. <laughs> now, is, is it normal to, to, to have, uh, to have water freezing on, on the fins? I know that it's supposed to drain into uh, ours has a tray. It drains into that 
that drains outside. But is it normal that the sometimes that freezes over? Yeah, it, it will. Um, you know, they're not frost-free refrigerators, but usually that's a telltale sign of, of not having quite enough uh, air movement or good circulation. And, and, you know, the hot air will kind of rise a little with the moisture and start to freeze that, that corner. And so what you want to make sure you do is that get one of those little fans that you can put inside. Don't block the uh, shelves. And try to use a, a, a minimal amount of metal in there as you can. You know, don't put metal cans and stuff because all that will create condensation. And that's what's freezing up in that corner. But, you know, it, it, you're still, when you get the heat of the days and you're opening it up and you're letting some moist air get in there, um, you know, you, you will have a tendency to get a little bit of buildup. But once it starts getting heavy buildup, you really need to make sure that you get rid of that because if, if that frost encases that, thermistor on that fin you've got a little wire temperature gauge it's called a thermistor and that's what's telling the, the eyebrow board and the module board that hey you know i need to cool now because because it's getting to a certain temperature well if it's encased in ice it's going to say i'm cold then it's not going to start up because it, it thinks it's 32 degrees frozen in ice and so a lot of people don't realize that the refrigerator is not cooling because the the, the thermistor it's saying, hey, I'm already cool. So you just need to make sure that that stays open and not, uh, you know, doesn't get encased in ice or frost. We'll have more of our interview with David Solberg from RV Repair Club. But first, let's just take a minute to talk about our friends over at Shady Rays. Summer may be ending, but that doesn't mean that you still can't look cool in this cooler weather with your Shady Rays. In a multitude of styles to fit any personality, Shady Rays is the perfect accessory to your next camping trip. It's coming up on holiday season, right? So now take advantage of the fact that we have a perfect holiday promo code for RV Miles listeners. And that is a buy one, get one with Shady Rays for any purchase of two sunglasses or more. One for you, one for a friend. Just head over to ShadyRays.com and use the code RV for 50% off your total purchase of two or more pairs of Shady Rays sunglasses. It's Shady Rays for everyone and it is never too early to start thinking about the holiday season. ShadyRays.com Use code RV for 50% off your total purchase of two or more pairs. And now let's get back to our interview with David Solberg from RV Repair Club. So another major issue in the summer, of course, is the air conditioner. A lot of people really want to stay cool. They want to stay as cool as they are in their house. Uh, and a lot of people are having issues keeping their air conditioners running, especially this time of, of the year. How does an RV air conditioner differ from a house air conditioner? And what do we need to do to take care of it to make sure it's running at its best? Well, an actual RV roof air conditioner runs very similar to a residential one. It's taking inside air and it is pulling it through an evaporator, getting the moisture out, and it, it can cool at about 20 degrees. The difference in, in the two, it comes in the fact that 
in your RV where you let it sit outside and on a day where it's going to be 90 degrees outside, that RV could get up to 120 inside. So when you try to condition that air, it can only do about 20 degrees at a time and people get a little frustrated by that. So the way the system works is, is it draws air in through the evaporator or the intake. Um, if you've got a roof air that it, it comes right out of the roof air itself, vents out of it, there's a panel right on the front. You'll see this grill and these grids. And so it's going to pull interior air in. It pulls it across the evaporator coil, which is the big coils in the front part. And you've got a motor and you've got a condenser and you've got the compressor. And then that's going to run refrigerant through these coils, pulls the moisture out. And that's where you see the condensation always dripping, you know, off the top of the roof is that just pulled your inside air and, and taking that out. And then there's drain holes for hoses. Some of them, some manufacturers put a hose in the actual roof so it drains back over away from the entrance door and stuff. So then it, it pulls it through there, conditions it, drops it back down in either your roof air vent off the air conditioning itself or if you got ducted roof air you know, along the outside. So the thing that people have to remember is, first of all, you have a filter that that air intake. It's got a foam filter or some type of a a filter where that it's going to try and keep the dust, the dog hairs, dander, all that kind of stuff from going inside. And that filter needs to be cleaned once a year. And very few people ever even look at the filter. That starts to get clogged. You have less airflow. You have less cooling capacity. So you need to need to uh, clean that once a year. The other thing you need to clean is actually the evaporator coils. And that requires getting up on the roof, taking the shroud off and probably it's even covered with a metal metal box on the front you pull that off and you'll see these these uh the basically the coil the grill with the coils running through it that's your evaporator coil and that gets dirty too and uh, in fact we had i think it was a bounder this lady was complaining of inefficient cooling and we went out and pulled it just locally here um pulled the roof air off and found that the, that the compressor and motor were bad now because she liked to put talcum powder on. And she would put the talcum powder on and the kind of foggy dust would hang around and the roof air would pull that stuff in. Her filter was completely plugged and her evaporator coil looked like somebody had taken and just put putty all oh. the way in the front. So no, very little air was getting through and that compressor and that motor and condenser were just working harder and harder and harder till the amp draw got to the point where the capacitors, boom, that was a, that was a done roof air. And so that's something that people need to get up there. And it may not be every year on the, on the evaporator coil, but you know, it all kind of depends on how much filters and, you know, what kind of dust and pet dander and I guess, uh, <laughs> talcum powder. There was a, we, we, we actually showed it in one of our videos. It was, it was quite surprising. You pull that thing off, it's like, whoa. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people say uh, my air conditioner suddenly is causing the breaker to trip more often. Does that mean it's, it's using more power because it's trying harder because it's dirty potentially? Yep. Gotcha. Yeah, they, the newer air conditioners as of probably about 2000 or maybe a little before that, should run about 14 amps. And when you're plugged into a 30 amp circuit and you've got your refrigerator running and various other things, uh, your compressor or your, con your converter will kick in to charge your batteries. And that's going to run about nine. 
And so if you've got that air conditioner and, the, and almost always it's the filters are plugged. So it's not getting the airflow. The amp draw gets up to where, you know, you're 18, 19, you know, you're going to blow, you're going to blow a 30 amp circuit just, just because that air conditioner, when it kicks in, you know, when that compressor kicks in and people don't equate it to something as simple as a filter. Uh, speaking of power, let's, let's move a little bit towards, uh, towards all the different power issues that we have to deal with in an RV batteries, I think are the biggest issue for people. How do 12 volt batteries work and what do we need to do to you know, properly keep them charged? Should we be draining them? Should we be keeping them on a charger in the winter? How do you maintain a, a battery properly? Well, the, the batteries, house batteries are deep cycle batteries. And, you know, it, it's kind of common in the industry right now. They last about two to three years. They should last five to seven years. And that's more because we're not conditioning them properly, just like you talked about, and we're not storing them properly. A battery is simply a storage device. It's going to store energy. And deep cycle batteries are designed to be drained down to 10.5 volts and then recharged up to 12.6 and drained and charged. They call those cycles. That's why it's a deep cycle. Now, a car battery is going to be a, a cold cranking amp. They're going to have to have a high amps to get that engine started. You put a car battery in for a house battery situation and it will be dead within a year. It, it's not designed for that. And so the way the system works is that when you're, you're plugged into a 120 volt source, campground source, you have a distribution center and you have a converter, which is a battery charger. You also may have an inverter that charges your battery. Uh, you with the larger 2000 watt inverters. So the converter doesn't, it sits there in the weights your battery's going to going to take care of your twelve your uh, interior lights, um, roof vents, water pump, any of your electrical appliances or your, your appliances that work off of LP also use battery power to open the valve and spark and so forth. And so when the battery gets down to ten point five volts, then the converter kicks in and it charges it at thirteen point six. The problem with that is that it doesn't do the multi stage charge that those lead acid batteries require. You have to have a high impact first stage that boils that battery and breaks up the sulfation because the sulfur will, will attack the plates as you drain it down and you need to break that up. So a, a good multi-stage charger, which a lot of your inverters will have, um, will break it up and then it goes into a float and an equalizing charge. If you don't have that, and I would say almost every trailer uh, fifth wheels that don't have an inverter have that basic converter that's just going to 13.6 till it gets up to 12.6 and it shuts off. Those will sulfate and you'll start to lose capacity. You'll start to lose storage. And so what some people say, well, when it was new, you know, I could go, I go four or five days boondocking and now I've got next to nothing. Uh, if you're plugged in all the time, you don't notice it as much because that converter just kind of keeps kicking on more often. Um, you know, but the minute you try to use that stuff while you're dry camping or boondocking, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, my batteries aren't totally charged. Um, you know, the AGMs are a lot better. They're, they're less susceptible to, um, the sulfation in it. So that's why you're seeing a lot of people going to the absorbed glass mat AGMs. Now that's opposed to the, the wet cell batteries that require you to 
maintain them by adding distilled water every now and then and making sure that that liquid Correct. is topped off? Correct. Okay. And, and the reason that it loses that um, you know, the electrolyte is that when you're charging the 13.6, there's some gassing. And, that, mm-hmm. and that's just you're going to lose that, that water level. And anytime you go down below the plate, then again, you're starting to lose capacity and, and you're getting sulfation. So, you know, checking your batteries more often. And I, I asked this in the seminar, how many people check their batteries before they go on every trip? And, and you know, it's a handful if that. You know, I usually get a guy to raise his hand and I say, oh, you're the one. So, um, there are some really good battery level products out there. U.S. Battery has one where you put um, individual check valves in each one of the cells and then you hook them together with a quarter inch plastic tube. And you just take that one tube, put it down into some distilled water, and it's got a little bulb squeezer, and it just automatically tops off your batteries before you go. So you don't even have to look at them. You just put in a thing and a couple pumps with that. The check valve keeps them from overfilling. They're on there all the time. Uh, one of the best products I've seen is very inexpensive, like $10 a check valve. Uh, some of those get, get a little pricey when you start getting poor um, batteries you know if you've got six volt batteries you've got to have two hooked in in series and you know so then you got two sets you got four batteries that some of those other ones that are out in the market are get very expensive but you got to top the batteries off otherwise they're not going to be as efficient all right let's uh this has all been fantastic information dave thank you so much. I'm I'm going to try to sneak you onto the show in the future when I've got more questions because this is just <laughs> okay. this is wonderful. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how people can get more of this type of information from RV Repair Club. Now you're it's a free website. Anybody can go there and and watch some of these videos. But you also have memberships and you sell stuff. Yep. How does how does all uh, how does the whole uh, RV Repair Club work? You can join free. Uh, about 20% of the videos that are on the site are free videos. Um, then the other ones, you can see a preview of them. And, you know, the whole idea is that if you if you join, they will send you offers, you know, to reduce the price, get online. It, right now, it's their number one, uh, they, they call it, uh, I can't remember what the name is, but if you sign up for free and you start seeing some of this conversion rate, is that, you know, it's, $50 a year to get access to all the videos. And, you know, there, there are literally hundreds of videos that will save you thousands of dollars, in my opinion, in repairs and maintenance, breakdowns, uh, stuff that you can do yourself. You know, we get into some pretty heavy stuff and we even say, you know, we're, you have to decide if you want to go this far to do it. If you have the skills, if you want to take gas valves off and that type of stuff. But, um, you know, even, even when you, sign up for free, then you are able to uh, ask questions. We have technicians that, uh, you know, we're getting 250 to 300 uh, questions a month uh, from our registered participants. And, uh, you know, there's some that are as crazy as how do I change the park pole on my 1989 bounder with a P30 chassis. And, and, you know, we, we research, we have several outlets that we go to and, and, find the answers you know uh, it's not just refer back to a dealership it's it's answer it the videos are great too you know a lot of people think that anything that you want to know is out there on the internet and uh, for free and and i 
I've had so many issues that I've had to research that I cannot find the answer to anywhere that you would think would be commonly known problems. And sometimes you'll find videos on YouTube that, that talk about it for a bit, but don't actually get into the nitty gritty of showing you how to, how to do it. And that's what I love about what your videos uh, do. They actually give you the, the sense of how to get through the problem, how to solve it. And, uh, and like you said, the overview videos that aren't even problem solving videos, just letting you know how a system works. I think that's so important for anybody because if you know that stuff, you'll be able to solve problems a lot easier without even having to go to the website when the problem comes up. Well, I, I've seen it so many times where, you know, somebody buys an RV and, and the dealer will do a walk around for them. And, and even the really good walk around takes several hours. You, you, it's information overload and you get out on the road and you go, okay, how did he show me to do this and, and or to do that? And it's nice to be able to have that ability to say, you know what, I really need to know how this refrigerator should run on 120 volts. You know, what do I need to do to make it run more efficient? Oh yeah, he told me about this high humidity switch here that if you if you have it shut off, the whole unit's off. And um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we really strive to do is to make sure that we we go to the professionals. You know, I bring Steve Albright in. Steve has has 30 years of appliance repair, wire prep, and service technology. He's a uh, certified master, RBIA master technician. And I bring him in to help with any of the electrical stuff. And, and we go to the source, we go to Blue Ox, we go to Roadmaster. You know, what do you say about this product rather than, you know, I, I consider myself a handyman. And I like to make sure that we get the professionals and get the right information out there. So as I walk through it, you know, our members can walk through it and be able to understand it and, and fix it the correct way. I like what you said early on about, uh, about how it's, it's just like buying a, a house and houses all have maintenance and they have problems that need to be fixed. And I think that's so important that you can't think of this like buying a car, uh, that is mass manufactured and has gone through, you know, decades of development to, to be as perfect as possible. You, you have to know that when you buy an RV, you're, you're going to have to fix it, not just maintain it. You're going to have to fix it. Uh, and it's so important to have a resource like yours to, to be able to fall back on, to help you out with this, this information. Heck, some of these RVs don't even come with manuals. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it's, you know, it's ironic that, that you would, with a house, you still have to silicone around the windows occasionally. You still have the, the upgrades and the maintenance. And, and one of the things that we try to push is the more you inspect, the more you check your sealants, the more you, you know, little tips and things that you can do where you, you've got some maintenance, but hopefully you can reduce the repairs. You know, leaks inside an RV, when you, when you see a leak inside the, the ceiling of your RV, it's kind of too late. At that point, you've got some you've got some bigger repairs going on. But the more you can inspect and say, "Ooh, you know, look, this front cap here is starting to crack where the sealant is at. I need to remove that stuff, put new sealant on. I need the right sealant. I can't just silicone everything. It won't stick to fiberglass and and certain rubber membranes. And 
and all this rubber membrane up here, it needs to be washed at least once a year and conditioned. You know, very few people ever do that. And so those are the things that may help reduce some of that um, repairs that are needed later on. Well, Dave Solberg, thanks so much for being on the show. If people want to uh, find out more about RV Repair Club, they go to rvrepairclub.com. You're all over social media as well. And uh, I, I really hope, I really do hope you'll come back on the show in the future because I think uh, it, it's it's great to give people a little bit of a taste of some of this information, but uh, they can they can go to your website and get a whole lot more. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Well, you're welcome. Thanks, Jason, and have a good time on the road. All right. Many thanks to David Solberg from RV Repair Club for joining us on the show this week. I will provide a link to RV Repair Club in the show notes, and we look forward to welcoming him back on the show in the future. All right, folks, I think that's going to do it for us this week. If you have any questions about anything you heard today, head over to rvmiles.com slash 108. That's where you're going to find the show notes. Or feel free to drop us a line over at editor at rvmiles.com. Of course, RV Miles is all across social media. Just search RV Miles. And then if you want to keep up with Jason and I and the boys, we are over at ourwanderingfamily.com. And we are also across social media. Now, of course, I would not be doing my duty as the solo podcast host if I did not mention the latest episode of America's National Parks podcast is now available. And it is all about Castillo de San Marcos. And yes, I practiced that. And yes, I'm pretty sure I still butchered it. So (laughs) I do no offense to the Castillo, but... It is a fantastic episode this week told by the rangers themselves who preserve and protect this lovely space. You can find America's National Parks podcast wherever you find RV Miles or over at nationalparkpodcast.com. Thank you all so much again for your grace and your kindness as I work on being a solo podcaster for just a few more weeks. I look forward to seeing you all next week. But until then, you know the drill and please go do it for us. Keep logging those RV miles. Take care.